Let's start out with the earliest recollections of films that you can remember, Mr. Folsey. Well, I, I can remember when I was a little bit of a boy, uh, my uncle, uh, we we'll call Uncle Henry, uh, used to take his son and me out to a place called Fort Hamilton, which is in Brooklyn, and there was a, uh, a kind of open-air pavilion. Uh, it, it was a great big porch-like uh, building, which was rather open on most of the sides, I guess. And uh, they ran pictures in there in the afternoons. It was dark because it was an enclosed place, but it was open to people who could come in and out of it very easily. And there were tables, and as I recall, uh, the men would have uh, some beer, and I guess this was an attraction to bring them there so that they'd bring their families and look at these pictures. And I can remember a picture of a, <clears throat> a Negro uh, stealing chickens in a chicken house, in a hen house, and, uh, and how he, their farmer would come out with a, with a shotgun and shoot at him, and how he ran down the alley and with the chickens uh, in his hand running away. It was just terribly fascinating to a little boy, and uh, of course we'd never seen any pictures up until then, and this was a great, great experience, and we were very thrilled by it. Uh -huh. That was my, that's the earliest that I can recall. Now let's <coughs> get to 1914, where your first contact uh, with the industry itself seems to have been as, what you tell about this. Well, I, I got a job in the, um, in the Famous Players Film Company, in New York uh, at the 26th Street studio. As a matter of fact, I worked in that studio all one afternoon before I realized uh, that it was a motion picture studio at all. I didn't know that it was. I, in fact, uh, the, the man hired me and said <clears throat> that I'd have to uh, start to work that afternoon, but nobody told me what I was to do, and I just stayed out in a little office where there was a telephone operator and a, and a switchboard, and since nobody came in or did anything, and I was strange to people, I didn't know anything about it. But the next morning when I came to work, uh, I saw Mary Pickford came in and went through this little uh, room into a, into a great big door and disappeared into some place which I didn't know about, and, and Carlisle Blackwell and uh, Harold Lockwood and... Uh, Hazel Dawn and Marguerite Clark and all the people that I had known as a, as a, as a kid and seen their pictures, and I was quite an avid picture-goer, and uh, as well most kids were, and I knew all of these uh, faces, and, and I recognized them, and I excitedly asked this girl who was Lily Mitchell, as I recall, who later was married to a cameraman that I eventually worked with, uh, uh, what this was about, and she said, well, it's a motion picture studio, and I was very excited, and uh, somebody came to me and said, take these names of these people, and you go through that door, and you'll find a fellow named uh, Bill Scully in there, and uh, ask him to, if he wants to see these people, and I went inside, and through these great big doors, and I was in, in a great world of make-believe, because it was a motion picture studio with four or five different sets in operation 
And I didn't come out of there for about two hours, and they have finally had to send for me because I was enchanted at an Indian being uh, uh, fixed uh, by a campfire with a big blot of uh, blood around him, and a, another scene on another stage, another part of the stage, which was a, a sort of a um, party of some kind, and I was very fascinated by the whole thing. And uh, that was my first impression that I was in a motion picture studio, and I really liked it. And tell us something about your duties there, and especially those that began to uh, occupy you and what the <coughs> films turn themselves. It off for a minute? Well, the, the the jobs that I had, or the job that I had, was a very varied one. You did everything that uh, that came along. I, I ran the switchboard. I ran an elevator up and down that. Uh, uh, was both a freight and a passenger elevator. I uh, would uh, be sent out to get Adolf Zucker's lunch. I remember getting Adolf Zucker's lunch one day uh, from a little delicatessen down the street from the studio. Then I had to get Ed Porter's lunch, who was a very important uh, cameraman and uh, part owner of the Famous Players Film Company and the man who shot the great train robbery and a number of things. Uh, and then uh, in the same day, oh, I had to get him a Chinese uh, lunch. He had Chinese and two Pittsburgh stogies, I recall. I had to get those. <laughs> and then, uh, then I was sent out to get John Barrymore's lunch, and this was a real affair because we, we, I went to the Castle Cave restaurant, which was on 7th Avenue around the corner from the studio, and I had to get, uh, oh, a very fancy lunch and a wonderful array of silverware and so on. <clears throat> While I was in the ca the Castle Cave restaurant, the in the uh, kitchen where they were preparing it, they uh, gave me some of the food themselves, and it was very nice. I realized how what a good choice he had made, and uh, the uh, the difference between his lunch and Mr. Porter's lunch and Mr. Zucker's lunch impressed me very greatly. Uh, we used to play little things, they'd need somebody to play a part in a picture and they'd come out and put a messenger boy uniform on one of us, sometimes me, sometimes a boy named Joe Goodrich, sometimes another boy that worked there, and slap some makeup on you and you'd either run an elevator in a, in a movie or you'd uh, uh, do some other thing, be a messenger boy or give out confetti in a party that I once did with Mary Pickford. and, and uh, all that sort of thing. Whatever happened to be uh, needed, you did. Then you were in one Barrymore film, weren't you? Was that the... Uh, <coughs> yes, I, I, was in, I was in, I think it was called uh, uh, the, the Incorrigible Duquesne, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I was a, a messenger boy in that, and I can remember the still picture that I still have of that, that time. And I was very, I can think of this high collar and his round, fat face of this little boy. What was your salary at this time, Mr. Falsey? Well, I got six dollars a week, and that was um, that was um, quite a time, you know. That was a long time ago, and six dollars a week wasn't didn't seem quite so bad then as it might now. And uh, and you felt you should have a raise. Oh yes, I I, uh, I worked there for quite a long time before I I had uh, uh, the courage to go and ask for a raise, and I finally I met Mr. Porter one night in the in the um, hall of the studio, 
And uh, I approached him and told him that I thought that I ought to have a raise, and he asked me how long I'd been there, and I told him a year and a half, and he asked me how much I was getting, and I told him $6 a week, and he looked at me rather peculiarly and said, well, uh, kind of gruffly, uh, you, next, now on it'll be $8 a week, and I was delighted, of course. The next week, when it didn't come in my pay envelope, I was very disappointed, but he hadn't forgotten because uh, the following week I got... Uh, four dollars extra to make up for the week he hadn't given me, and I was very happy about that. Later on, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, he became, the, I think, the first man, at least in the eastern part of the country, uh, to have an assistant cameraman. Uh, uh, he, uh, he was such a busy man, he had so much to do that, I guess, loading the film and and uh, filling the magazines and doing all of the other things that he had to do at the same time were very uh, cumbersome. So he, uh, he he took an assistant cameraman, and I think that that is the way that particular uh, job came into being, especially in that studio, and I could suddenly see that this is a fascinating business and this is what I would like to get into. So eventually uh, I... Uh, started out to be Emmett Williams' assistant. He had asked me if I would be his assistant, and I was delighted to. But suddenly he was called away to California, and eventually I became Lyman Bruning's assistant. And uh, this was uh, launched me on a very interesting career, and one that I've never regretted. Well, just before that, there was a, a time when you were afraid that uh, Porter was going to fire you, wasn't there? When you were in Mr. Zucker's office one day? <coughs> oh, I, re I remember that. Uh, it seems that there was a time when um, the famous players were becoming, uh, you know, a bigger and a more cumbersome organization, and a, a very, uh, uh, they were growing very rapidly, and Mr. Porter was involved with great technical things, and I suppose he, he wasn't able to progress along with the business end of it as rapidly as... Uh, it was progressing, and he couldn't keep up with it, and I suppose there were new people coming in, and he felt somehow that he was losing his grip on the uh, administrative end of the business, and he was protesting one night uh, to Mr. Zucker in Mr. Zucker's office when I entered to tell Mr. Zucker some message or other that was there, and uh, Porter was saying, I haven't got any authority around here. I can't even fire an office boy. And Mr. Zucker said, yes, you can. And I thought he was going to say, there's an office boy. Fire him. And I said to myself, what a great time this is to come in here. But he, was, uh, he didn't take this opportunity, and he didn't fire me. Uh, did uh, Porter, uh, was he the cameraman on his own films that he directed at that time? Oh, yes. Um, he, just he, before this, uh, before he took a maiden assistant and so forth. Was he, uh, was he uh, the, the cameraman? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, he was the cameraman. And, uh, and his early films, I mean. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I... Uh, he was a cameraman ever since uh, his introduction into the picture business, as I understand it. I didn't make myself quite clear on that. I, I meant that, uh, did he direct and, and uh, was and he on camera? Yeah, did he direct and photograph all the... Uh, I don't recall him ever actually directing anything. Hugh Ford was the director uh, of the most of the films, or practically all of the films that, uh, that Ed Porter did at the Famous Players Film Company. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and, and, and Porter uh, photographed them 
and assisted uh, in the uh, direction of them by, uh, you know, setting yes. the camera and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I, I believe that the actual director was Hugh Ford, who was a stage director and, and a very, very capable one. Then there was a time uh, after the fire at uh, Famous Players when they decided to uh, search out a site for a new studio. Tell us about that. Oh, that was uh, <coughs> it was known as the uh, as the uh, Frank I think it was Frank A. Uh, Durland Writing Academy. I can't recall the first name. It was located on 56th Street, and uh, one night, quite after dark. Uh, all of the big brass of the Famous Players Film Company, uh, Adolf Zucker, Ed Porter, uh, Weinberg, Ben Schulberg, uh, Ralph Cohn, who was a lawyer, uh, uh, Emil Schauer, who was a treasurer, I believe, and uh, Mr. Zucker, all went to the 56th Street Studio, or at that time the Durland Writing Academy, to investigate it. Al Kaufman was there, too to see if uh, it would do for them to make pictures in. And since it was a writing academy, there was a, a sort of a ring around the a writing ring or an air, a rim around the edge of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had, there was no light in there. There wasn't any electricity at all. So they had given me a little uh, oil lantern that I was to hold up and look, let them peer into this darkness. Well... Uh, it was pretty inadequate lighting, and you could not see very far in front of you. Uh, Mr. Zucker, incidentally, tripped over this little board that I speak about, and I was afraid that he was going to break his neck or hurt himself, and I would get bawled out for it, and so I was quite concerned, but he was all right. And that night was the night that they picked the 56th Street Studio, which was the headquarters for the Famous Players Film Company in the eastern part of the country anyway, for some years until they built the Long Island studio, which was a great big structure. This was right across from the Great Northern Hotel and was the uh, sort of the uh, base of uh, our people whenever we'd come in from California or yes, when they'd have uh -huh. to stay in overnight or something. Uh, you wanted to know something about the um, the, the Dolly uh, story about the light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess it has to do with the uh, uh, the uh, introduction of the sunlight arc uh, into the picture business. Uh, one night, uh, Dolly and Lyman Bruning and uh, myself and a camera went to the Sperry Gyroscope Company in Brooklyn, and up on top of the roof of that building, they had a, a, a Sperry, uh, Sperry searchlight, which they used on battleships. And with that uh, light, we photographed, or Lyman photographed, uh, the Woolworth Building, which was across the river in New York, and shot it around in the various parts of Brooklyn into, if I remember, there was a high school, very close, a night high school, and they shut the light into that, and all the students and the people came running to the window to see what it was about. This was a very strong and very brilliant light, and from away across the river, you could 
very easily see the Woolworth building very brightly lit up and they photographed this and you could see it the next day when we saw it on the screen. It was very impressive. And uh, several days later, or maybe a, a couple of weeks later, could be, uh, they had Dawley arranged to bring out from the Sparrow Gyroscope, uh, Gyroscope Company a number of these elements which they put on platforms around the top of a great big set which was very very big and uh, everybody in the studio had told him that there wasn't enough light in the studio to photograph and he said don't worry it'll be all right and he um, his faith in this uh, idea was so strong and he was so positive about it that uh, having seen this experiment that he um, went ahead with this with this plan and 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 they put these lights around the top of the studio, or the top of the set, and photographed a great big huge set with these, uh, in, with these arc lights, without the uh, housing and without the, uh, the, the searchlight part of it. And uh, it was very successful, except everybody in the company got Klee guys and got an awful case of them, and they had to <laughs> lay off for a couple of days. But however, uh, this caused Dawley and a man named Hammer and some other people to invest in a company called the Sunlight Arc Company and was, I believe, the inception of the arc light such as we know it today in the picture business, which was a, originally a Sperry Gyroscope Company's uh, searchlight, which they used on battleships. And uh, I just uh, know that this is a very definite true fact because I was there. What are some of the films that you made uh, uh, under Dolly's direction and uh, as assistant to uh, Lyman Bruning? Is that the yes, Lyman, Lyman Bruning. Well, uh, we used to make, uh, every year it seemed like, we'd make a, 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 a fairy story for their Christmas release. They always tried to release these pictures at Christmas time. We made Snow White and the uh, Seven Swans and uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, they made a picture called Silks and Satins, which was a very romantic and very costume picture. And uh, they made the Bab series with Dick Bothamus and Marguerite Clark, which was the written by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. And we'd go up to Connecticut uh, in the summer mornings and be up there in uh, around Tarrytown and uh, and. Mm -hmm and uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, in that area, uh, doing these little series of pictures, and I had some very wonderful and interesting experiences. What were your precise duties as assistant to Bruning at this time? Well, um, let me see. That's hard to remember. Uh, well, I'd have to... I'd have to load the magazines in the morning, get all of the film loaded into magazines if we were going to be away on location and have the camera uh, and tripod and the various accessory uh, cases uh, and the magazine cases and have them and the still cameras and the changing bag and all of the equipment that you'd need very uh, positively counted and packed and loaded into a car. and. We'd take off, and then I'd have to set the camera up and put uh, slates and numbers on. Incidentally, I was also kind of a script clerk for Dolly, 
because he had a very interesting system. He would start with the first scene in the picture that we would start on, whatever it would be, would be scene number one, and the last scene would be whatever that number of scenes would mm -hmm. be, that would be the last. And then I'd have to write out a little description of that scene as we uh, did it. Then at night, I would have to take these notes that I'd made during the day and write out a series of cards. And from these cards, he, he would cut the picture, he would cut the negative. In those days, they didn't have rushes such as we know today. And uh, he would take these uh, little uh, notes that I had written as a description of what each scene was, and he would then cut the negative. And I think that uh, in those early days, the first time anybody saw the picture on positive film on a screen was when it, when it was in the theater, and this must have been an awful shock, so I'm done. <laughs> now, um, tell us about uh, what you had to do for lack of a Vida counter in the camera in those days. Well, in, in those days, we, of course, we, we'd have to make all of the lap dissolves and all of the trick work, uh, the, the, uh, the, any, any trick work that we had to do, uh, which is now done in optical printers in, in the laboratories and so forth. We'd have to do this in the camera. We had no Vita counter such as uh, we have today on cameras. And uh, I had to stand alongside the camera and very carefully count every turn a cameraman made so that uh, when it was time to fade out, I would be able to get that exact uh, uh, footage so that we could duplicate that in, say, two or three months from now, or maybe a month from then, uh, we'd have to put that film back in the camera and run it blank where the film had been previously exposed until we came to just that particular place where he had faded out, and then we would fade in so that we would make a nice uh, lap and there wouldn't be any uh, black frames. And this uh, meant that you had to pay strict attention to what was going on and nothing must divert you because Lord help you if you missed any of those counts because you'd have to do the thing all over again. And of course we had cans and cans and cans of these in the, in the dark room piled up in our dark room and I would have to make uh, three copies of this. One I would tape into the can itself, another I would uh, enter into a, a, a book that I'd put in a steel locker and then I had another a uh, book that I'd put in a, in a desk so that I had three separate places that I would have this to be sure that I didn't lose any. And I must say that in the four years that I was Lyman's assistant, I, I uh, never happened to lose any. What was the usual cranking cadence in those days? Oh, they, they cranked at 16 pictures uh, a second. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that was uh, prevalent until the sound pictures came in and the, the tempo was increased to 24. Somewhere along about here, I just can't remember exactly when it was, uh, I, I was put to work with Larry Williams. I don't know just exactly why either, but I, I left Lyman and went with Larry Williams. And uh, we were to do we were to do a picture with uh, George M. Cohen. I think it was the first picture that Cohen did because he was rather um, apprehensive about it and uh, had to be reassured repeatedly by uh, Joe Kaufman that if if it wasn't all right, they could do it over again. And uh, of course, he was a very interesting and fascinating man, Cohen was, and a great thrill for me to be so close to him. We uh, went to Florida on that picture, and I think it was one of the, one of the 
most exciting times. We we were uh, down in Florida, <clears throat> and uh, it was the first time I was able to shoot a second camera on, on a real picture. I'd done some things aside from uh, being on a real picture, uh, some smaller things, but uh, this was the first time on a, on a real picture that I was able to shoot a second camera, and it was I always owe it to Larry Williams for giving me this opportunity. And uh, while well, I guess I shook a little, uh, it, it eventually came out all right and it was fine. And, and uh, Joe Kaufman, who was the, as I said, was the director, he, he always impressed me. He was, the, he was the first director that I had, uh, up to that time, had run into that seemed to have a very uh, serious uh, 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 business-like uh, attitude about the, the job that he was doing and uh, uh, he seemed to be uh, I don't mean less artistic but he seemed more of a like a businessman about it that it, it was a, a job that he wanted uh, everybody to, to be as interested in as he was and he seemed to take a very intelligent attitude about it and, and I was very impressed with him and uh, I can remember uh, he died, I think, from pneumonia. He was married to Ethel Clayton, and I, I was in the studio on 56th Street, standing a by a long corridor that we had there, and uh, this rather sorrowful uh, creature came in. It was Ethel Clayton about the day after the funeral with great sad eyes, and she was uh, coming in to pick up his effects, and I was very sorry for her because she was a very charming woman. And in fact, many years later, I... Uh, when I became a first cameraman, I had the occasion to photograph her, and I recall that seeing her at that time it was, you know, very interesting to me. What's the uh, the, the uh, next assignment that you recall uh, most clearly? Was it the Crusoe one on My Cousin in 1918? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, incidentally, that was a cameraman named Hal Young who. Uh, who has uh, since gone to England? I, I think he was English, and he'd been over here working. And he would, he went back to England. Um, we went up to Gloucester, Massachusetts. I think director's name was Edward Jose, and uh, his wife, I recall, was a script clerk, and she always had a little a little sort of stool that she'd sit on uh, right near the camera, and uh, it used to drive Hal crazy because he, it seemed like he was always in the way with this thing. So when she'd get up to do something or be away from there for a minute, he'd always hide the stool. And I, he <laughs> just, he was a very <laughs> mischievous kind of fellow anyway, and uh, to drive this poor woman crazy. Uh, Lina Cavalieri was in the picture, uh, and I think Courtney Foote. Um, we were up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, sometime late in, in uh, in September, the first morning when when we got into uh, Gloucester, we went out on this long uh, beach, and they picked a number of locations. Uh, I was along and listening in there and heard what they said. There was one particular one that they said, "Now we'll take a shot of that at sunrise when it's high tide, and that will make that strip of land an island." There was a little place out there which was at high tide, was an island, and they intended to take a sunrise uh, over that thing, and uh, it would look like they were shooting out into an ocean with an island there. So um, after they had been up there several weeks, 
the whole company left, leaving me uh, with a camera and uh, uh, to take some shots. One of these shots was the one I had just mentioned and several others that they had indicated along the way. Uh, there were several people who had been in a company and they were, uh, they were ill with a flu. I think it was during that flu epidemic and they were very ill. So they left me a hundred dollars to take care of uh, my uh, hotel expenses and uh, transportation back and forth to these uh, locations. The, um, uh, the hotel, uh, the doctor's fees for the people who were ill, uh, the, the drugstore uh, things that had to be gotten for them. And of course, I very quickly ran out of $100. So I sent a message back to the studio to, for more money. And they sent me another $100. And I used that up very rapidly because I had a great many bills to pay. And I was the unit manager, the assistant director, the cameraman, the location man, everything else about this. And I was also paying all these doctor bills and so on. And my money was very soon gone. So I uh, sent back a wire for an incident. We had run, been running into some very bad weather and uh, there was no sunrise because every morning I'd get up at about three o'clock and get a taxi cab and go out to this location where this supposed island was and <clears throat> there would be no sun. It would be foggy, overcast day and <clears throat> we didn't have any weather supervision in those days so we didn't know. And uh, this went on for three or four, I guess four or five days. Uh, in the meantime, the expenses were going on. I, I sent for more money, and they immediately sent me a wire and said, come home immediately. And I said, uh, they said, stop everything, leave the shots, and come home. So I said, uh, leave a Pathé camera as payment for uh, needed expenses, and I'm leaving. And they sent me another wire and said, stay there and pay the bills, <laughs> and sent me more money. And... Uh, uh, that was uh, my biggest experience with uh, being the financial department in the picture business. Then one day uh, you were explaining something to uh, Caruso about the American form oh, of <clears throat> In those days we used to make, uh, uh, at one time during in the picture business, we used to make an American and then a foreign take. Uh, that would be, uh, first we'd make a scene and we'd get it pretty well the way we wanted it, and then, then they'd make a, a negative for the foreign market. And uh, they'd go ahead and make it, and this was sort of generally accepted as a, as a make a good take for America, and then get a, another take, and it, if it was all right, you'd send it away. So Caruso said, "What is this American and, and foreign? What is that?" And I said, "Oh, well, we make two takes, and we make, as a kid would say, glibly and not thinking." I said, "We make an, uh, two takes, one for America, and we send the other one. And we keep the best one here for America, and we send the other one to Europe." And immediately the director who was very intelligent and very wise and <laughs> the ways of the world realized this was a very bad thing to tell a foreigner so he said oh no no this isn't true Mr. Caruso <laughs> this is not so and I realized that I had made a big faux pas. And after this you worked on the uh, second Caruso film uh, Prince Cosmo didn't you? Uh, yes and I, uh, uh, I, I I think it was the Prince Cosmo film that uh, it was either that or my cousin, I'm not sure which, in oh. which he sang... Uh, that was my cousin. My yeah. cousin, in which he sang uh, uh, Pagliacci. And I recall standing on a stage, I'm sure not more than 15 feet away, while uh, the great Caruso sang this gorgeous thing and, and did this scene so wonderfully. And I uh, have recently, uh, since long since then, sort of kicked myself for not realizing what a great... Uh, 
privilege it was to be there and hear this man sing in person because later when I grew up and was a little more mature, I, I had a great uh, uh, admiration and, and uh, appreciation of Caruso's singing, which I unfortunately didn't have when I was there when I could hear him. Uh, I'd like to tell you something about that island up in Gloucester. Uh, as I said <clears throat> uh, before, we, uh, we had an island, and, and we were there in the early part of September. And the first morning we had been in, in, on the location, they picked this particular spot, and they said, well, we'll take a sunrise shot right from here, and so on. Uh, then the company was there several weeks. They went away, and we had a long, long period of time in which there was no sun, fog, fog, fog. So it was rather sometime in the, maybe the, the middle of October or the first part of October, uh, maybe a month later, that finally there came the day that I could get there, and it was a nice sunny morning. The only difficulty was that the sun didn't come up over the island as it had in the beginning of, of September. It came up way to the south of that. And I was dumbfounded and uh, appalled because now I have no way to get the camera far enough over to my left to photograph the island and the sun at the same time because it's now nothing but great uh, water uh, uh, thing which uh, was there, a great big uh, body of water. So I decided that I ha if I had a platform, if I had some kind of a structure that I could get out in that water, I could get the camera over to the left and, and do this. Now, you must remember that I was an, uh, I was an assistant cameraman and, and my job is to get the shot. Uh, obstructions, uh, difficulties, and possibilities uh, had to be overcome some way. So I went to the taxicab man who was driving me out to this place every morning, and I said, "Do you uh, do you know anybody who has a milk wagon or a hard-topped wagon that we could uh, that could borrow?" And he said, "No, he didn't know, but he'd find out." So eventually, he found out, found a woman, and we went out to see her. And she owned a hard-topped farm wagon. She said we could have told her what we wanted to do, and she said we could borrow it. I had to pay her some 15 or $20, I had to go. So uh, she said that it was um, it had been uh, rented by some farmers who were living at such and such a place out in the sticks somewhere, and, but to go out there and get it, but to not to tell them about it. it Seems seems all right at the time, so uh, the taxi cab driver and myself went out to this farm about 12.31 o'clock one night, tiptoed into the farm yard, located the wagon, dragged it out of the... I went up to the window, looked into this house, and here these farmers are all sleeping on the floor. I couldn't understand why they weren't sleeping in beds, but they were all sleeping on the floor on various kinds of uh, mattresses and blankets and various things. And so we carefully rolled this farm wagon out of the farmyard into the road, attached it to the taxi cab, and drove it down to the beach. And then very uh, laboriously pushed it out into the sand and out into the water where I finally was able to get my shot. And if you don't think that was a deal, <laughs> if those farmers had ever awakened, we'd have been shot to pieces because they were, you know, I neglected to say that uh, while we were trying to photograph this island and the sun was uh, not where it was supposed to be, 
uh, I kept getting letters from the management in New York saying, come on back, why don't you get these shots and so forth, and I was writing them letters explaining how that uh, how the sun was not uh, where they had originally seen it, but that it had moved farther to the south. Uh, now, they, they, they began to question my sanity because everybody knows that the sun rises in the east, it doesn't rise in the south, but... Uh, I found it very difficult to convince them over the, uh, my, my letters that uh, this was so, and after almost killing myself to get this farm wagon and finally getting the shot and getting back finally to New York, I was very uh, annoyed and angry at the stupidity of these people, so I went barging into the manager's office, who, as I recall, was J.N. Nolte, and uh, he had a very uh, important effect on my later life, I'll tell you about eventually. But <clears throat> I, I stormed into his office and I was, uh, he said, why was this, why you, couldn't you get it? What is this about the sun rising in the south? So I, I, I demonstrated my point with ink wells and pens and uh, blotters and various uh, articles that were on his desk in a very decisive manner, and I think before I left his office, I had him convinced <laughs> that the sun did move to the south each uh, day just a little bit more, and it didn't come up in the same place every single day of the year. I was going to talk about... Uh, uh, Becoming a first cameraman. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, about this time, I, um, I became a second cameraman, and I was assigned to a picture called His Bridal Night, and the cameraman who was photographing it was a Frenchman named Jax Monteran. Uh, Jax was a very, very strange-looking man. He was a big, tall, cadaverous Frenchman, and he wore, <coughs> he wore this uh, very funny hat. He had a, a, a Sherlock Holmes hat. I never saw him without it. And his overcoat was a long check coat, and he wore it all the time. And he just never seemed to be without it. And he was a very, very unhappy, uh, lonesome man, apparently. But I didn't realize that at the time, but he was apparently very unhappy being in New York. And uh, he, he decided quickly one day that he had had enough of it, and he thought he'd go back to France and raise violets. And he did right now, and he left. And, uh, gee, the, the director said to me, I was 19, and he said, can you photograph the picture? And of course I said, at 19 I could do anything. I said, of course I can, certainly. And uh, I'll never forget this director. He was a wonderful person and helped me tremendously. His name was Kenneth Webb, and uh, I made a number of pictures with him. And he was very kind, and he was certainly a great, great help to me, on, particularly on that first picture. So I started to photograph this Alice Brady picture, which was full of uh, uh, split stages. Uh, she she played two parts, and we had all kinds of tricks, and we had to uh, have her give herself a ring and walk around herself and uh, stand in back of herself, and there uh, were well, very many complications about it. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, uh, I wanted to say about... Uh, yeah. Uh, about the time that we were, were getting ready to make this picture, 
Alice Brady had fallen in love with Jimmy Crane. He was the son of a of a uh, of a of a Dr. Crane, who was a minister, a very good-looking young fellow. And Alice was very, very deeply in love with him. Uh, this same seemed to make Alice have a, a sort of a heavenly, angelic quality about her that I think anybody could have photographed her in those days and made her look just beautiful. And uh, uh, the fact that it was my good fortune to make my first picture with a, a woman who who was such a good actress and who was so terribly in love uh, certainly was a, a great stroke of, of, of good fortune for me and uh, I've been kind of in favor of love ever since. Uh, the, 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 it was a very interesting thing that happened to me about that time. I was getting, uh, as an assistant cameraman, I was getting $18 a week. This was the top salary that you could get in that particular studio and as a matter of fact I, I uh, finally after being there for some time I, I got another job I went to work with a man named Van Buren Ned Van Buren at the Goldwyn Company for $25 a week and this was a big big jump for me and I thought it was in Clover but I was in the studio about four or five days and uh, I was lonesome for the 56th Street studio and I didn't like this place at all and I I just couldn't stand it and I come home every night with a long face and finally the family said why don't you go back and get your other job back so I I finally decided that was the only way to do it and I quit and I came back to the famous players film company for my old job at $18 a week and I was very happy to get it back and I think I was very fortunate again because uh, shortly after that the Goldwyn company folded up their offices and went away and left and uh, I wouldn't have been with them because they certainly weren't going to take me to the coast uh, anyway, I, I, as I say, I was getting $18 a week, and I got to be a second cameraman, and they raised me to 22 And uh, then this cameraman decided to go to France, and I got to be the first man, and I was paid $40 a week. So all of a sudden, my salary is from 18 to $40 a week, and I'm doing all right, because I'm so busy making the picture and learning about it that I haven't got time to even think about the money. And uh, when the picture finished, and it was... a uh, uh, successful picture and everybody seemed to know about it and, and, and it was talked about because it had all these double exposures and they were done in a very uh, new way that Kenneth Webb had, had told me about and had helped me with. Uh, they seemed to make a little conversation about it and I was offered another job. I, I really didn't want this other job but I, I knew that I had to get more than the money I was getting because this was not enough for a first cameraman. So um, I went in to see this same Mr. Nolte, J.N. Nolte, who I had talked about earlier. And uh, <clears throat> after three days, it took me three days to get to see him, I uh, told, he told me that uh, I was going to get $50 a week from now on. And I said, well, that's wonderful, and I appreciated it, but that I had something to talk to him about, that I'd had another offer of another job. And he... Uh, he said, well, how much do they want to pay you? And I said, um, $175 a week. And he whistled in amazement, and he sort of rocked back on his heels a little, and he said, well, would you sign a contract with us for six months for $100 a week? And I said, yes, sir, right that quick. I was ready to sign, and I was delighted to be there, but I did feel that I should use this opportunity. to, And it was a legitimate opportunity, and I didn't want to, pass it up, but I did feel that I should stay where I was known and where my friends were and 
where I was used to the place. And that's about the money question. Uh, during these early pictures, I, I, I realized that there was an inadequacy and a lack of knowledge about uh, the, the lighting, and, and the lighting seemed to be terribly important, and it was an extremely interesting thing, and I felt that, that I should know much more about it than I did. Uh, <clears throat> I, I got a hold of a, a copy of Poole's uh, Art of Composition and a Critical Judgment of Pictures, as I recall is the exact title. And I began to read this and use it as a sort of Bible. And from that, I, I began to uh, uh, go to museums and to, 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 to look at paintings of, 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 of artists and, and uh, go to photographic exhibitions because I felt that, uh, that I had to know more about this particular job and, and how to do them. And uh, in looking over uh, the stills that I've gathered throughout the years, I feel that I can see a, a progress and, a, and an improvement in the style and in the quality of, of some of these pictures that I had been doing. And the still pictures that some that I had made, actually had made as a still cameraman, because in, in the early days, uh, the first cameraman was also the still cameraman. And... Uh, I'm particularly reminded of, a, of one director that I worked with, Chester Franklin, and uh, I made pictures with him both in the Long Island studio and in uh, the Real Art studio in California. Uh, I learned more about photography from Chester Franklin uh, than any other person that I had ever worked with. He was a great, great artist, and as a matter of fact, just before he died, he had an exhibition of his paintings in Los Angeles, and uh, he was uh, well on his way to a very great career as a painter when he died, unfortunately, prematurely as far as his artwork was concerned. But he was a great uh, person to work with, and uh, uh, I have a still picture in front of me here that is uh, with B.B. Daniels and, a, and, a, and some other woman whom I can't recall. And... Uh, it shows a very definite uh, improvement from some of the earlier ones that, uh, that, uh, that I had looked at and we had shot before. Explain about this uh, crucifix oh, in the background. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Uh, it, it, it's a picture with uh, two, la two women, one uh, baby Daniel sitting on a bed in a Spanish costume and uh, a Spanish woman in Antia alongside of her, and between the two with a very uh, sort of uh, interesting cross light is a, is a crucifix with a shaft of light coming down uh, on this uh, wall, throwing the shadow of the crucifix on the wall. And uh, I remember that we used to use this uh, type of, of light sometimes with a, uh, with a uh, scrim uh, uh, drawn across the, uh, the, the back of the set. And sometimes in the early days of pictures when they wanted to have a, an effect of having someone having just died or uh, <clears throat> uh, some kind of an effect that they wanted, we would have a baby spotlight and it would, we would fade it in and, and it would project a little uh, highlight on the uh, drawn threads of this um, bobbinet, as we called it, or scrim in back of the people. And it would give a kind of ethereal uh, sort of quality to the scene. And it, w it would appear 
as the person had died. So <coughs> it had this, uh, it had a kind of movement and, and an impression of uh, religion to it. Now, uh, after you went to, um, there's a picture you made here called Slim Shoulder. Uh, Sh Slim Shoulders. Yes, I can't yeah. see it. Well, <coughs> Slim Shoulders was, um, uh, it, it came about in this way. I was, uh, <coughs> I was in California and I just finished uh, my contract with the real art people. Uh, and, uh. Uh, I didn't know anybody else in California except the people that I was with right at that studio. And so I had no contacts, and my mind immediately went back to New York. About then, a man named Van Polgrave, who was an art director with the uh, Famous Players Film Company, told me that an old, an old friend of mine uh, named Walter Tilford was about to become a producer, was going to make a picture with Irene Castle, and uh, suggested that I get in touch with him. So I... I, I uh, I remembered Walter as a still as a, as a as a property man in the early days when I was an, an assistant cameraman, and I uh, recalled also that I used to uh, pop in and help him pull the potted palms around and sweep the floors and push the tables around when I was through with my work. And uh, I sent him a wire and and uh, hoped that I might get a response of some kind from him. I did immediately get one back, and he had suggested that I. Uh, he he could guarantee me a certain amount of time, five weeks on a picture or something of that sort. And uh, I left, I think, the next day for New York with a job, and in a few days we went to Florida where we did this picture with uh, Irene Castle. And uh, <coughs> I'm reminded of the of the fact that this this particular picture was a sort of springboard for about, oh, I should think maybe... Uh, five to ten years steady work because I went with Walter Tilford from one picture after another uh, with very little time in between them and then um, suddenly the inspiration First National Pictures came along and I began to uh, to do some of those and uh, then I, I, I got uh, to photograph the Bright Shawl with John Robertson and Dick Bothamus was in that, along with Dorothy Gish and Eddie Robinson and so on. And uh, it was very interesting to me because I had been a, as an assistant cameraman with Dick Bothamus for about three or four years when I was a little kid. And then to grow up and get to be a cameraman, we went to Cuba. And it was a very interesting time. And I did that in the Fighting Blade with him. And then The Enchanted Cottage came along, which... <coughs> Excuse me, George. When you were making uh, the fighting blade, I believe that you remarked that you learned something about uh, diffused lighting, wasn't it? Oh yes. We have a still here. Yes, I remember this. We were looking at a still picture here of um, of the woods in Fort Lee. Um, uh, it was in a sort of winter time, and uh, there were no leaves on the trees, and they had a wonderful tracy quality. The skies were very leaden and overcast, and we were shooting a dawn sequence. And we decided that uh, although it was overcast and dull and darkish, we should shoot it anyway because uh, it seemed to have the feeling that we wanted. And I was struck with the, uh, the, the overall soft quality of the light that uh, we had on our film. And I think that this was a, about this time that I began to be impressed with the value of uh, 
uh, say you might say reflected light. I've been thinking about this now for many years and have comparatively recently used it almost exclusively on a picture. And uh, my early impressions, I think, were right because as I look at that still picture that we made so many years ago and realize that uh, the very uh, thing that I saw then had a basic uh, quality of truth in it because later on I, I was able to use uh, uh, in the green years uh, and in uh, if winter comes we, we photographed uh, on the stages with the same quality of light which we had to create on the stages through large silks hung over the top of the set and getting a completely diffused quality to the light and uh, it had a very, very similar feeling, and it was very successful, and I'm, I'm reminded of that by this picture. Now, in the Enchanted <coughs> Cottage, I think um, you should speak a little bit about that, George, too. In the Enchanted Cottage, we, we, uh, we had the, uh, the ghosts that came drifting through the window and through these various rooms in this little cottage, which incidentally was a very, very uh, attractive and, and, and beautiful set. As I recall, there was, was real leaded glass windows in there, and they were um, uh, the names of the former residents, uh, the honeymooners, had been uh, written in, 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 with a diamond ring of the girl on the windows, on the window panes. And uh, we had a feeling of moonbeams coming in this uh, this little room, and uh, these ghosts flitting in, flitting in and out. And we had to do those all on the camera, of course, in those days. And also, uh, the uh, May McAvoy, who who in the picture was a very ugly little girl, and Dick was a, a crippled uh, man. Uh, we had to make May uh, trans change rather from. Uh, being this ugly girl to a very beautiful girl. And we had a great big close-up of her, which uh, we did, and we did the whole change in the camera, too. Uh, we, we, we had a great, great big close-up of her, and right in front of your eyes, this girl changed from this ugly, ugly thing to this beautiful face that Mae McAvoy had then. And uh, it was a very long, slow fade-in, and it just matched perfectly. We had, had a still camera set up on the side and had marked it off very carefully so that when she came back and sat in there, I had her move into exactly the same position that she had been in before. Everything seemed to be just perfectly right. Her chin, her nose, and her eyes, and her ears, and so on, the size, the shape of her head, and the position of her head. And it really came out magnificently and uh, was a, one of the high points in the picture, I think, when it was finally finished. It was one other time when uh, there was something rather similar that happened to you, and that was during uh, the making of the John Barrymore, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Tell about that. Oh, my goodness. That was... <laughs> I'll, I'll not forget that. That's, that's quite a thing. Well, <clears throat> when they were doing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I was sent over to um, be a second cameraman with Roy Overbaugh, who was photographing the picture. And they needed somebody to run a camera because he was going to do something and change from uh, the good character to the bad character right before uh, our uh, camera with no stopping. Now, nobody had told me what was going to happen. And uh, 
innocently enough. I was also, we were going to make a fade out on this at one time. And uh, he, he started out in the scene by uh, pouring this potion and drinking it, as I recall. And then he stood there for just a brief time, and then he began to go into grimaces and convulsions, and uh, I didn't know quite what was going to happen or what was going on. And then he doubled up suddenly and, and covered his face, and the time that he did, he'd, he'd shoved some false teeth into his mouth and had f made uh, some foam come by chewing on some soap or some other substance. He'd pulled his hair down over his eyes, and he could scratched himself or had put some kind of thing on his face in the midst of all this and nothing flat, I think. He had come up out of this posture that he was in in the most horrible looking face I've ever seen in my life and scared the living daylights out of me. I almost stopped grinding the camera because I was so startled and was so completely unexpected and believe me, I'm sure that nobody in the audience ever had quite the reaction I did because he was right there in front of my face and he just about scared me to death. There was something else you mentioned, George, about uh, Overbaugh's lighting setup and that. Memory. Oh, you mean about the incandescent yeah. light? Oh, well, I, 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 it was one of the earliest times, I think, of um, the use of incandescent light. Uh, Roy had a scene in which he had a oven or crucible or something that was uh, to be used, and he had an electric bulb in there, which was a great innovation in those days because uh, we used arc light entirely, and... Uh, Nobody had ever thought at that time of using incandescent light as we know it today. Of course, it's a very simple thing, but it just wasn't done. And uh, nobody knew about it, and nobody had ever done it, to my knowledge, before. And I was uh, very interested in seeing that Roy did that, and, and it worked out very well.